Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of RealCom Live. Um, I'd like to think that each week we bring a great topic uh, to the program, but um, every once in a while, one pops out that's of special interest, rises a little bit more to the top, and I think that's the case for this week. PropTech, the status of our startup ecosystem, the, the, the billions of dollars that have been invested. Um, this current phase of uh, PropTech investing, which we call uh, the fourth phase, probably started right around 2009 after the 2008 financial collapse. And an enormous amount of money has been flowing into the sector ever since. So we're going that on, what, 13 years. Uh, thousands of companies, we're going to talk about that a little bit, uh, all at various stages, some successful and some not. So with the current downturn in the market, uh, uh, with you know, inflation at the core, uh, general tech's being impacted. And today, one of the things we're going to try to get to the bottom of is how is it impacting um, prop tech? Uh, and the investment, uh, the startup investment uh, cycle. So we got two really, really notable and respected individuals, Travis Connor, the co-founder and general partner of Business Building Ventures, and Paige Pitcher, the head of strategic partnerships for Modern Ventures. So let's bring these two on and get right to it because we've got so much to talk about. How are you folks? Good to see you. Great. Nice to be with you. Doing well. Thanks for having us. Congratulations, Travis, on your announcement. You want to take a second and just tell everybody what happened this week? Pretty good-sized news. Yes, we announced our second fund, which is a $95 million fund that will allow us to continue our mission as an early-stage venture firm of investing in supporting startups who are looking to reshape and rethink how we design, build, operate, and experience the built environment. Awesome. Congratulations. So Thank you. I know it's not just important how much you raise, but by, from who you raise it from, you know, the strategic element of those partnerships and the vision alignment, uh, a lot of work. So congratulations on that. Well, let's let the audience learn a little bit about the two of you. Uh, Paige, why don't we start with you, 30 seconds or so, just a quick rundown of your career and how you got to this conversation today. Sure thing. Uh, I guess I've always been a bit of a building junkie, but I started out um, developing for my own company called Give in Utah. So I built um, affordable housing there and did some really cool mixed use stuff before um, moving to Heinz and um, helped lead their charge on innovation about five years ago or so, uh, including their corporate venture program and supporting startups and kind of, you know, growing them from the inside out of a large global developer and manager. And I loved it. So now I get to do that full time. And with Modern Ventures, we're a female founded GP fund out of Chicago at about over 400 AUM, million AUM, and about 130 portfolio companies. So my job as partnerships is to interface with the industry and match up those needs with people who wake up every day trying to solve that problem. And that's our uh, startup community. Awesome. Travis? So I come at, it, at this from more of an investor background, uh, originally on the public company side of technology before flipping over to venture investing in 2000. Jim, you'd ask the question about when PropTech began. I actually, my first PropTech investment was an integrated workplace management software company that no one remembers back in 2001, Centerstone Software. Okay, I, I don't which recall. Which is now <laughs> buried somewhere deep in the bowels of MRI. Okay. Um, <laughs> But uh, so it's a space that's been interesting to me. And, and I did my first investment with my co-founder here at Building Ventures in 2006, which was a very early smart cities company. So it's been an area of interest to us for a long time. Um, and in 2016, we decided to create a dedicated fund focused on this space. And so that's what we're all about now. Awesome. Yeah. So a lot of experience in the room, so to speak. 
Um, is it safe to say that this current investment um, trend that, that we're in right now started in 09? Is that fair? After 2008, uh, the crash, we kind of got reorganized and a lot of interest started in 2009 and has continued pretty consistently uh, over the last 13 years. Fair statement? I, 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 I was, please pitch. Oh, no, sorry, Travis. The, I, I think that's fair to say just from the genesis story of, of our fund and our firm that started in 2008. So okay. we started doing this in 2008. I feel like we're on the cusp of something a little bit different, um, just probably in the last two to three years. But Travis, I'm curious your thoughts. Uh, yeah, I tend to look at these things and, and work backwards from the, the customer experience. And I think that there were companies who were trying to push technology into industries that didn't really absorb very much of it and has been true for a long time. I think what changed in 2008, 2009 was a recognition by owners and operators of how little they understood about the buildings that they were in. And we started to see tools that addressed getting a hold of the, understanding what data was available and what might I do with that, that data. And once you start down that journey of recognizing that data and software can make an impact, I think that is really what allowed what we see is this current prop tech trend and the number of firms to come and support entrepreneurs who are trying to do something with that information. I think I'd like to bring both you back and maybe a couple other folks and have a panel on coming up with the scientific DNA of the adoption curve within the built environment. Because I think that's the one aspect of this whole investment scenario that, that has to be really understood. Ideas could be really good right in front of your nose but our industry's capacity to absorb them at scale is, is something I've been curious about for a real long time. And uh, But again, that would be a whole episode on just that topic. Um, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but we mentioned, you know, we talked about it on the planning call a little bit. Uh, Paige, a guesstimate. How many companies, not in PropTech in general, because that's residential, that's the Middle East, that's global, commercial corporate real estate, built environment, North America-ish, how many active companies, both startups and mature companies, do we have in the space right now, in your opinion? It, it, it really depends, Jim. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer this from two perspectives. One is I agree with you that the, the adoption curve is probably slow because we have the same number of decision makers in corporate real estate and commercial real estate as we probably always have had, but we have an increasing number of, of technology companies selling into it. So that's the imbalance that we're feeling. You know, we track 15,000 companies, about 5,000 new ones a year, but we are much broader than just commercial real estate technology. So I'd say on the high end for me, that's globally, including residential and multifamily, it's about 15,000. So I don't know, maybe yeah. 10 or 15% of that. Kravis, how about you? Yeah, that feels that feels right to me. I, I think that the, the there would be the bulk of that that effort is being deployed in North America towards commercial because that's where the money is. So if it's, you know, 2,000, 3,000, uh, like, like Paige, we pay an awful lot of attention to the, to the total number globally because it's about the entrepreneurial energy that's being targeted at these problems. That right. is really very interesting, right? As we see, there's many companies that do the same thing. You got to wade through them. So while there may ultimately be only one or two or three players in the space, there are a couple hundred all trying to tackle it because the problem still hasn't been solved. Yeah, our, our number is about three to 3,000 to 3,500. You know, which we would consider, you know, we probably, you know, lob off some of those folks that are, are struggling a little bit or aren't truly committed to the space, right? They play in the space, but they're not committed. But you both bring up very good points about the number of people out there able to assess these technologies. And then a lot of the startups who really, frankly, don't take the time to even know they've got competitors, don't fully understand the market. You've all been on those phone calls just like I have. And within a couple of minutes, you realize you better go back and learn a little bit about the industry before you start 
trying to pitch to it. And um, God, as we're talking, questions just keep coming up. We'll have to have a, we'll have to have you back. Um, so let's move through these questions really quick. The general tech sector, uh, you, you read the headlines every morning, okay? Uh, inflation, interest rates, you know, stopping the quantitative easing. Big companies, SoftBank, uh, Kathy Woods, ARK Innovation this morning. She's off two funds, SPACs, folding shop, giving back money. Microsoft, all the FANG, you know, the FANG companies, uh, seriously depressed stocks. And even some people in our sector who went, you know, public six, nine, you know, 12 months ago, significant drop in valuation. So question number one is, what do you think about the general tech? And then question number two is, what's the relationship with what's going on there with our subsector prop tech? Travis, you want to start? Sure. I, I would say, you know, the, the, the simple reality is that there's an awful lot of money that has been trying to chase yield for a long, long time. And when there was no yield in anything that looked like fixed income, it wanted to find equities and ultimately its way to private. And we've seen a, a whole bunch of what used to be public focused money come towards the, pub, the private markets. The simple reality is the actual share of great companies doesn't doesn't increase at the same rate that the volume of money that's available for them. And so that's why you get overheated over investment in any kind of particular space. Uh, Andreessen Horowitz used to say that you know, somewhere between 12 and 15 significant businesses were created every year. Maybe that number has doubled, maybe it's even tripled, but it's not hundreds or thousands. Right. And so when you have, you know, Tiger and Kutu and Arc and others who want to find ways to deploy, you know, large amounts of money um, that inflates the valuation far beyond, you know, where those companies can be. And we've seen in our own space plenty of failures where over investing in a company. I won't say WeWork or Katera, but let's use WeWork and Katera. You can't force feed a company money to be successful faster than it can. Yeah, no. I think that it's prop tech will follow the general markets to some degree, but you can't compare general tech with something that's incredibly physical. So our fundamentals are just different, right? Real estate is 15, 16% of our GDP and 3% of VC dollars. That even though we're topping out our, you know, our VC funding in real estate tech last year, 30 billion or whatever it was for the US, we we have greater fundamentals than a simple SaaS company trying to address a large consumer market for the largest asset class. And so I feel like our story is going to play out a little bit differently because our fundamentals are different. Do you think the, the, down, the downward pressure on valuations is going to create some headwinds for some companies who might be looking for additional rounds? I mean, this morning I read an article about down rounds. Yeah, I haven't heard that phrase in a while. Uh, Travis, uh, what do you think? I think I think is I think is growth stage investors or investors who were not committed to this market space because of the fundamentals, but because of the momentum, um, right. as they withdraw, then it will be harder to find pockets of money, and that may have pressure on valuations for later stage companies. I think those who saw it as being committed to it because of the the, the sort of macro market opportunity that prop tech, you know, I. Five years ago, when Modern and I, you know, were both, both getting going at this, I don't think we saw a lot of what people would consider mainstream venture firms who were looking at our companies. And over the past five years, we've seen tremendous interest in, please send us all your Bs, all your Cs, all your Ds. I think some of that tourism will end. And yet some of those firms have recognized, hey, this is a transformation of sector. And, you know, we're going to start applying people to it. And we're going to dedicate people to it. 
So I think it will be harder at the later stages to support some of the valuations that might have been inflated by people coming in and just trying to pump them up in order to get the deal. Um, but some, of those gener some of those generalists that you spoke of, I remember speaking to one and, and he said, I won't talk to anybody about investing unless they promise me that they're going to disintermediate the major enterprise players. And I'm going, if you ever know what it takes to pull an accounting system and all of the you know, connected systems out of a, of a real estate company, I'm not sure disintermediation is, is you know, I mean, you know, around the edges, yes, better you know, products. But if you don't understand the fundamental of how money moves in this industry and how complicated it is, um, those tourists, as you said, I think are going to get tired and maybe go away, making it easier for folks like you, correct? Where are folks underscores the value of having strategic investors to have strategic value you can add to those companies that if generalists are only tourists and there's even more need for these types of solutions that I think that advice to give to folks who are still raising that, yeah, there's a fantastic amount of dry powder that is still out there and your valuations are just going to look different. They have for the last two quarters and this might be the lowest yet in Q4, but deals are still being done. It's just about being realistic. And I think it only underscores those specific firms that have the ability to add strategic value. I think that's why folks like this in this conversation are so important. Uh, I'm going to get one more question before we take a quick break. Um, you know, for years, it was growth and market share at any cost, right? Just get out there. The money will keep coming. And, you know, in the last six to nine months, I understand that's changing. And you know, what, what's going, what conversations are being had behind closed doors? Tighten the reins, you know, you know, let's see some cash flow. I mean, what, I mean, we, we read the articles, we speculate, but you guys are in those meetings. What are, what is your community telling its early stage companies about capital and, and, and the goals and objectives? Paige, why don't we start with you? Um, I think, these are gonna be common words in everyone's probably phone calls and, and in recent vocabulary. There's a strong conversation around path to profitability. In some cases, it might even be a reduction in staff. And these are just ways in which you can extend that useful sort of life of the capital that you have um, without burning too much. So I think you'll see just more targeted growth plans, a better go-to-market strategy for what you have. Um, I think you might see roadmaps extend a little bit further, but the the conversations behind closed doors um, might be a little bit about tightening up, but I still think that there's plenty of plenty of room to run. Okay, Travis. Yeah, I had a I had a, a former uh, colleague and, and mentor who who famously used to say, "You can't save your way to success in the startup world." Right. I think the the thing that we look more carefully at these days is what is sustainable growth. You know, growth is essential, but there was a time not very long ago where if you were growing four or five X, whether that was sustainable or not, that opened up a broad universe of follow on investors you could look to. Right. As that universe shrinks a little bit, you want it, it's you may get the same valuation by saying, let's let's go to a more reasonable set of investors who appreciate the business better. But we still need to be growing at, you know, a, a very high velocity because we're trying to get big, but also in a way that it's sustainable, not just to pump up the next round. All right. Boy, I'll tell you, I wish this this was an hour-long conversation because as you guys are talking, I, more questions just keep coming to my mind. Hopefully, we'll have you back uh, if that's okay with you because this is, a, I think, a conversation that's worth having, not just today, but you know, pretty consistently. Let's take a brief break, come back, and continue this great conversation um, and with Travis and Paige. 
All right. Um, getting, getting right back to the conversation. Uh, last time, or, or the last uh, cycle before the one that started in 08 and 09, let's go back uh, to the dot com world. Um, the venture capital, you know, commitment in, in that those time frames, it was basically okay. Here's here's the money you're asking for. We're going to give you 24 to 36 months. We want you to do one of two things: achieve dominant market share or some type of sustainable cash flow that we don't have to worry about you. We're not going to consider you a, a superstar at that point, but if you can, you know, handle it on your own, you're okay. That runway's gotten much longer um, this time around, and, and the number of rounds in this particular cycle is at least two and a half, three times more than I've ever seen in earlier investment cycles. Travis, any thoughts on why that is? I think the, I think the markets generally reward scale. You know, if you, if you, if you look back to the days when an Autodesk or an Apple went public, they were raising 60, 70, $80 million. <laughs> and we've just seen that number continue to click up. I mean, I did a short stint as an investment banker in the late nineties and at those times, we were looking at raising $100, $200 million for companies. Now, broader markets want, because of the way that funds have come together, to be able to deploy much larger sums of money. So all of that dictates that companies have to get bigger to find an exit path. And in getting bigger requires more capital to get there, right? So we're staying private for a lot longer. We tend to think at the stage that we invest in, companies are eight to 10 years away from liquidity. And so how do we build a $100 million gross margin business in that time frame? And if we do that, then we don't have to worry too much about what those market conditions are going to be because they're likely to reward it with the appropriate valuation. With the market saying right now, though, with the rising of interest rates and inflation, that there's too much capital in the market, is that squeeze going to impact either of your strategies uh, in the next couple of years? I don't believe so. I mean, we're playing in an earlier stage area of the market that there's plenty of of growth and room to go. So I, although it will impact, you know, um, things that are in the PL today, your labor costs, your dev costs, et cetera. But I think that be given, as Travis mentioned, eight to 10 years. And if, if you look at the natural venture numbers of their stats of what it takes to go public, it's like 6.6, .6, which to me seems very short and small. Um, but I think there's a lot of room left to grow. Like for instance, one of our companies went, um, sold the same amount of EV chargers that a major public company um, went public with. So mm. if you can sell the same number that somebody went public with a few years back in one quarter, that means there's more room and there's more growth. There's more value to be generated as your private company before you right. take that into a different arena. Right. Yeah. Very good point. Uh, the other thing that I struggle with is, you know, the, the amount of capital, the length of time, um, and, and then COVID hits and we had this work from home experiment. And uh, what I'm hearing again, from, you know, when I put my ear to the ground and our closed door meetings is that because of COVID and this work from home experiment and, and, and the challenges of getting people back into the office and not just COVID, but the crime and traffic and commutes and all the other things that were there well before COVID is that there's, there's questions as to how much technology that we've invested in that was for the old business model. And now that these owners are going to have to rethink their strategies, right? As far as what does that office look like? Who's coming in? What are the numbers? Are we converting to apartments? Um, that there's going to be this this tension or this this quiet period as the industry figures out I'm not getting the revenue from these buildings I used to, and that you're asking me to spend more money. Um, Travis, are you seeing any of that tension? Uh, you know, between trying to figure out the old business model and the new business oh, model. For sure. I mean, I think one of the one of the core theses that we have um, 
and have had since we, we founded the firm was this idea that buildings had to transition from being financial assets to businesses. And as businesses, you have to think about how do you maximize delivery for all stakeholders involved. And you know, real estate is, has for the longest time, probably since its beginning, had the ability, if I have a great downtown location, there's a bunch of assumptions I can make about the value of that asset. Um, as when it becomes that uh, the power goes in the hands of the end occupants of that building and lease terms get shorter, which we believe will continue to happen over time. And as you have to think about what's the right usage for that, then it, I think it totally changes the dynamic in the model of what is this building and how do I optimize it as a business asset, not just as a Absolutely. financial thing from which I can pull dividends for with 10 year leases. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the overlying big trend, you know, is the distributed hybrid workforce. How much sticks? You know, what's the next evolution of it? I mean, we're going to see some crazy products coming out of Microsoft and Zoom and others. I, I had meetings yesterday about, you know, e expansive, immersive, immersive experiences from your ranch in Wyoming. Right. Uh, and, and so there's a lot of questions about, you know, the, I mean, the, the real estate world that we're in right now is, is a result of Henry Ford. Right. You know, and, and he gave us these automobiles that allow us to drive from the suburbs to the cities to go to work. All that's being challenged right now, not just by the commutes and the productivity, but the carbon question. It's almost conflicting. The carbon question says, don't get in your car and go to work. Right. So uh, there's a lot of brain power that's going to have to be applied to this. Um, we're going to run out of time, but I do have one more question. I want to try to squeeze in because um, at the end of the day, we're about pushing this stuff forward in a, in a positive way. Paige, give me a couple of your favorite categories or technologies that you got your eye on and you're excited about. I was just going to go there, Jim, when it was talking, <laughs> when you're talking about how to extend kind of the useful life of what we've got and, and where are we commuting to or from. I think there's three, three main deals that we closed recently in the last quarter. So companies that are out there, deals are still happening. Q4 might be a little sleepy, but the, the due diligence is happening. The timelines are a little bit longer, but we're still here. Um, the last three that we closed were were in areas that will kind of go out of order, but they were about the future of electrification yeah. um, and a company called Zeal that does EV charging. We looked at the future of connectivity, and we talked a little about that in our prep call, Jim. So we have a company called Airwave doing um, managed Wi-Fi networks and sort of connecting and lighting up an entire building. And the last one is ESG, broadly speaking. Um, so any companies that might help us with the utility um, optimization and reporting structure. So those are three of the major categories that I think are going to help us be the last building standing. Yeah. Travis? Yeah, I would just add to that that um, so we the framework that we tend to use on what 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 creates you know inflection points and huge drivers of change in any industry are when a technology becomes available that allows you to do something you couldn't do before, or it becomes so broadly adopted that you can build new business models and use cases on top of it. That regulation forces change. And most powerfully, when people's belief systems start to, to start to shift. And I think what, what, what always gets excited about this space is all four of those kind of converge perfectly on the built environment right now. We don't need break, technical breakthroughs in order to make a big difference. We have adopted, as, you've, as you have been you know, pushing and evangelizing for a long time, Jim, lots of technology that's out in these buildings. It's about how do we better utilize it? The electrification trend that Paige just mentioned, I think that recent legislation and mindset and an understanding of how important it is that we shift over from fossil fuel to electrification, all of these buildings has to happen very, very rapidly. And we've got new regulatory frameworks to help incent that. And then just people's beliefs that, hey, there might be a technical or a soft 
or solution to this problem versus what historically was, let's just solve it with bodies or customer lock-in. Yeah. And I, I've been saying for, I mean, one of the founding pillars of Realcom, you know, one of the reasons we started it, I was in Manhattan 25 years ago and looked up and saw lights on at two o'clock in the morning and nobody was in the building. Honestly, that, that happened, you know? And so I, we've had technology for 25 years that can solve that problem. I think the bigger conversation has to be on the personal realignment and the organizational realignment by people in our industry. Uh, their, their willingness to really not just talk about things, not just go look for the shiny new objects, but make the decisions and pragmatically install it for good business reasons, right? Yeah. Well, and as, and as, the, as the, the underwriters of these projects demand both ESG accountability and the optimization and, and the lack of, of wastefulness. I mean, I, out of my bedroom window, I see what we call the John Hancock Tower here in Boston, but you know, Jim, Jim Wayne likes to call 200 Clarendon now. There are still lights on in that building in the middle of the night. 25 years later. And it's, I don't yeah. think it's because people are burning the midnight oil. No, no, no. So, so I do think we should probably have a session on the psychology of paradigm shifts and, and really what does it take to get people to realize we are in a paradigm shift and on your, you know, on your ESG and, and the new bills and legislations coming out, unfortunately it may take the stick and the carrot just did not work. We'll see. Um, we are out of time. As you can tell, we could just keep going. We're going to hopefully have you back if you're willing. <clears throat> And we're, we'll go maybe a little deeper into some of these questions that we had to fly through. But I really appreciate your time. I respect your opinions uh, greatly. And uh, it was fun seeing you again. And I'm hoping we'll see you soon in person. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Travis. Have a Thanks, great day. See you both. All right. With that, let's bring on Lisa Woods, who's going to bring us this week's news. Lisa, covering for Howard, who's on the road traveling. And uh, I'm excited to have you do the news. And um, Give us an idea of what the heck is going on in real estate technology this week of what June, uh, September 22nd or 23rd. Yeah, I know. We're, we are actually in September. We're going to be October before we know it. Yeah, let me get out of your way and let you get to the news. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. Well, our weekly briefing newsletter goes out every Thursday, as you guys know, and uh, and with uh, the the newsletter has all the top stories that touch commercial and corporate real estate and technology. In this segment, we highlight a few of those articles that we think are especially important and interesting. So, our lead article this week is actually a transcription of the general session presentation given about three months ago at the Realcom IBCon conference in Orlando by Found and CEO Anant Yardi. The presentation was about the future of work and it was so relevant and timely that we thought it really deserved to be shared with an even broader audience. So the article begins with a dramatic transformation about the work environment that has undergone the last few years. Before COVID, as you all know, most employees worked in office buildings a full five days a week. Surveys that were taken in 2020 indicate that a large number of employers required their workers to come into the office. According to a post-pandemic survey conducted by Cornet Global of their members in January of this year, only 11% of companies now require their employees to come into a physical office full-time. A full 29% state that employees don't have to come into the office at all as long as the job gets done. Well, Anant talks about a survey that they did of their own 8,000 employees at Yardi asking about their preference of working from home versus coming into the office. The vast majority of his, of his employees said that they would prefer to come into the office only one day per month or when they are needed in the office. This shift significantly impacts the future of office space and occupancy, where in the U.S., large office buildings account for 8 billion square feet of space. 
Many office buildings might be occupied right now because tenants are in a long-term lease, but the article states that the evidence is beginning to show that when those leases expire, many companies are choosing to downsize, and that's where the demand for co-working comes into play. Currently, there are about 6,000 co-working facilities in the U.S., which is about 100 million square feet, and according to the evidence, the demand for co-working is expected to rise exponentially over the next few years, presenting a significant avenue to repurpose this vacant space. The article points to another statistic which shows that revenue per square foot for co-working now is higher than traditional leasing by a factor of four. So co-working may present a win-win opportunity for real estate owners and employees. It's a great presentation and the article includes a link to the video of the actual live presentation. So if you'd like to watch it instead of read it, that option's available. The next article we're featuring this week is courtesy of our technology partner, Losant, and deals with the smart environment and using IoT data to create value. According to this article, a smart environment really reflects an organization's commitment to making decisions that are backed by data. IoT platforms, they collect, they visualize and analyze data from existing building management systems and can assess how those specific assets and the environment are performing. So the article covers the various applications and the business value for establishing a smart environment and details the short-term and the long-term uses of IoT data. So it talks about occupancy monitoring to determine how spaces within the environment are being used or not being used, whether to invest capital in building more workspaces or to repurpose existing underutilized space. It talks about hot desking, smart parking, remote monitoring, and the transition from preventative maintenance in a smart environment to condition-based maintenance. It also talks about monitoring and optimizing energy usage to help drive sustainability goals. So this is a really interesting read, so check it out when you have a chance. Lastly, a few weeks ago, we announced a new element to our newsletter, the Smart Building Best Practice Showcase Project Spotlight. Now, these projects are taken from our annual RealCom IBCon conference, where we host a Smart Building Showcase, and we feature all the best, most progressive implementations of smart buildings, campuses, districts, and portfolios across the globe. Well, this week, we're featuring 80 Ann Street, um, a Mervec project in Brisbane, Australia, this world-class office tower is set to become one of Australia's smartest, most sustainable and efficient buildings. It features 100% electric heating, it's net zero carbon in operations, and has breathable floors to promote natural and mixed mode ventilation throughout the building. The article covers not only specifics about the project itself, but includes the challenges they faced and their overall successes once the project was done. So check that one out as well. There are a lot of things going on in the industry this week, particularly around companies and people. So when you have a chance, take a look at the other articles featured in the newsletter, or you can go to our website and click on the news link. Yeah, and Lisa, I, I gotta agree with you that um, article about Anand's presentation at the conference. Uh, not only does he know what he's doing because he's been in this industry probably than longer than anybody, 30 plus years, but Yardi's got access to a lot of data. Right. It's all right. anonymized. They're not going to tell, you know, whose data it is, but he gets to look right. into that crystal ball and understand the importance of, of lease signings and lease valuations. And most importantly, that critical piece of information, lease expiration date. 
Right. And, and, and I think if I was an owner, if I was a, a tenant, I think, you know, that presentation, which was about 10 minutes, the article is a three, four minute read, well, well worth the time and effort. Absolutely. There's a lot of good information in there. There are a lot of graphs and survey results and a lot of data points. So it's definitely worth the read. And the presentation was great. I, I awesome. thought it was, it was a really, really good talk. A little painful at times, but spot on. So. That's right. All right, Lise, have a great weekend and uh, I'll see you next week. Be well. Thanks for having me. All right, before we wrap, why don't we hear from our final sponsor and I'm gonna come back and tell you a little bit about next week's show. All right, uh, I just wanna say thank you to our two guests, uh, Lisa for doing the news and our team, Nancy and Ian that put together uh, this great show each week. Um, next week, again, another special show, a special topic. So as most of you or many of you know, we do an event in the fall called Cortec. And this one is focused on the corporate real estate, corporate real estate side of the equation, the tenants. And you know, to uh, quote a, a famous uh, uh, quote, I think it was uh, Tom Cruise that said, uh, show me the money, okay? And what that means is you gotta go through the supply chain and you gotta find out where the money is being spent, therefore driving the decision-making process. If you think about a commercial building and all the tenants in that building, all roads point to the tenant. Their willingness to lease the space, their willingness to pay the rent, nothing happens without those dollars flowing from the tenant's bank accounts into the landlords. So what we use Cortec uh, for is, is finding out what is the corporate real estate, the tenant occupier, what do they want with their space? How much space do they want? What technology do they need uh, in that space? What technology do they need from the from the uh, landlord, from the building side? And it's a it's it's a it's a smaller event intentionally because we have a lot of back and forth conversations. But who wouldn't want to listen to? You know, especially since it's in Silicon Valley, and we're going to have some of the major corporations there who've been leading this charge for many years, talking about their idea of the future of work, future of office, future of retail. And so we've got three phenomenal guests. We've got uh, Maureen Ehrenberg from Blue Skyer, Ryan Albaugh from Wells Fargo, and David Gunter from Pinterest, uh, banking, uh, you know, social and, uh, and facilities. Incredible. And by the way, these are our chairmen, co-chairs for the event. So they're going to give a little sneak preview as far as what are the topics their peers are talking about on the corporate real estate side of this, this conversation. So with that, you have a great weekend, and we will see you next Friday in Realcom Live. You all be well. Take care.